I'd like to welcome all the parents and families that are in for this special weekend to visit with your student at Northwestern. We are glad that you are here. I was talking to one of my staff members earlier, and I was like, great. It's family weekend, and I'm preaching on the wrath of God. And then he said, at least it was not as bad as the sermon you gave on Mother's Day on hell. Yeah, that was comforting. So what we do is we preach through books of the Bible, and be it family weekend, Mother's Day, we preach what's there. Because what we don't want to do is fashion God in our image. We want God to be who he is, represented by his word. And so in order to do that, um, we have to stick with the word and rely on the spirit. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come from a variety of backgrounds, but you are God, God alone. It's not who we think you are, and what's not what's true for me doesn't have to be true for you or someone else in here. It's, it's who you are, what's true about you. And there are things in your word that make us uncomfortable. Today would be one of them. And yet the tension of your wrath is resolved in Jesus. So, Lord, as we see you disciplining and even judging today, may we not act like it has nothing to do with us. Because you're the same God today as you were many, many years ago. And may your word come alive by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was reading a book called Yawning at Tigers by Drew Dyke, and he tells a story of he and his wife uh, on a resort next to an ocean in Hawaii that had a man-made lagoon, and I wanted to see that lagoon, so I looked it up on the internet. So here it is. It's a picture of a man-made lagoon, and you notice the ocean is in the background, but there in the lagoon is a place where the people who are at the hotel can play around. And he said that he and his wife were very excited to swim in this protected man-made lagoon because it screened out all of the scary marine life. Like there was no sharks in the lagoon and it was just filled with slow-moving sea turtles and beautiful fish. So they were so excited, they jumped in and after an hour of swimming around, they got bored. They got bored and, and they just hung out beside the lagoon the rest of the day. And he said, the problem wasn't with what I saw, the problem was what he did not see. He said, there are no waves, there was no spray from the surf, there was no tides, no coral reefs, no danger, no depths, because it wasn't the ocean. And so he was looking at the ocean that was off in the distance, and he said to his wife, you know, we could go swim in there. And so he makes this connection, this spiritual connection, by saying the ocean is like God. And the lagoon is a very poor replacement, like an idol. Like the God lagoon, this idol may seem real and it may be working, but it's just fake. And it's a trivial replacement for the true God. But hey, it's comfortable in the God lagoon. 
Because these idols that we have, they're safe and they're controllable, while God seems like the ocean, which is dangerous and unpredictable. But if you have fashioned an idol for yourself, and if you are in this God lagoon, you know that life can be not just boring, but you can feel trapped or in bondage. Because you want to break out of this lagoon, you want to swim in the ocean. And some of you are getting to the point where you're sick and tired of your idol trapping you. You're sick and tired of the the gods you have fashioned, and you want to break out. You want to encounter God. You don't care how dangerous God is. You don't care how uncontrollable God is or how unpredictable he is. You're sick and tired of this controlled contraption that you have created of your idol that has you trapped, and you're sick and tired of it, and you're ready to go. You're ready to go over there, swim in the ocean of the one true God. So today, we are going to look at a group of people who thought they were dealing with a God lagoon, when in fact, they were dealing with the one true God. It's a story we started last week in the book of 1 Samuel, where the ark of God had been captured by Israel's enemies, the Philistines. Now, if you remember the ark, it represented the spiritual and symbolic presence of God. But the Israelites treated the ark like it was some big magic box that they could somehow march it into war with their big magic box and and they would win. And yet, as we saw last week, they were soundly defeated and the Philistines stole the ark. And God's people were punished. Not because the Philistines had this overpowering army. They They were punished because God was disciplining them for their sin, for their idolatry, for treating God's ark in such a trivial way. And so today, boy, it's, it's a bonus day at church. You chose the right day to come because we are going to cover two whole chapters. That's right, two chapters. We're going to do a lot of reading. When's the last time you've been in church and the sermon was on two whole chapters? What a bonus. And so we're going to keep coming back to one big idea. I'm going to tell you the idea. Half of you are not going to understand what I'm talking about, and so I'm going to have to explain it. So here is the big idea, and it comes from my background. The big idea is this. God don't play. God don't play. Let me explain the terminology. When I was growing up, and someone was messing around or bugging someone else, we would say to them, stop playing, man. Or if someone was trying to trick us or acting a joking way or try to get us to do something we wouldn't want to do, we would say, man, stop playing. It was mainly said in the context when someone was being disrespectful or someone was not treating someone or something with enough seriousness. So we would refuse to go along with the flow, and we would say, stop playing. I don't know if anybody talks like that anymore, but I used to talk like that all the time, and I do it with my kids as well. Stop playing. So that's how it works. So in our context today, we're going to see that God is not trivial. He is not small. He's not a little bitty God to be reckoned with. He does not mess around. God does not play. Now, you're ready for two chapters. Let's do this. Start 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. 
So I already told you this. The enemies of Israel have captured the ark, which is symbolic of his presence. And they have brought it to Ashdod about 30 miles east of Jerusalem. Verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. They thought it was appropriate. They defeated the Israelites to take the Israelites' God, which would be the ark, which in their mind wasn't just the symbolic presence, but contained the actual presence, just like God uh, of Dagon, their God. So they take it and they put Dagon and they ark right next to it on the shelf next to Dagon. This is what you do. Dagon is the master God, and he has defeated your God. Bring your God into the temple and set him up next to the master, Dagon. Verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Did you love that? He's fallen face downward. It's as if he's worshiping the Lord, right? And so get this, so that they go over to Dagon, they go over to their God, pick up their God, let me give you some help, stick him back on the shelf. (laughs) Verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. His head fell off. His arms are off. And back during this time, they would take the enemies that they have captured in war, and they would cut their heads off, and they would cut their hands off. And right now, Dagon's head is off. His arms are off. It will be like, nice trunk God. God don't play. And if you have come here this morning attempting to set an idol on the shelf of your heart next to God, he will have none of it. If you call yourself a believer, and yet from time to time, as we all do, get caught up in idolatry, whether it's sex or money or your job or your degree or some type of substance, and you say, God, I'm going to set this on the shelf right next to you, God will have none of it because he does not play. He does not mess around. And he loves his people, as I'm speaking to the people of God here, so much so that he'll discipline you. He'll discipline you. Because he will have no other gods besides himself over your life. Well, watch what happens to the Philistines. It gets worse. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and inflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So God is uh, uh, actively inflicting the people of Ashdod and the territory with tumors to torment and even to kill them. And later we're going to see in this crazy story that mice are mentioned 
And many scholars conclude that maybe this is like the, the bubonic plague with mice as the carrier. So God, obviously, he's not someone to be messed with and treated like all the other idols and lagoon gods. He's inflicting them with tumors. So the leaders are like, this is not good. We have to come up with a plan to fix this. Verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. Like all great leaders, instead of dealing with the problem, they pass it on. Let's put the ark in another city so we don't have to deal with it. Doesn't go so well. Verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Same thing happened in Gath. So they attempt to move the ark again. It's it's, it's almost like a game of hot potato with the ark. If the ark lands in your city, then you are out. Verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The Philistines realize this is not like other gods they have encountered. This is not like their god, Dagon. They're dealing with a situation here that is beyond their little safe and predictable spiritual landscape. They think we could just deal with a little god lagoon stuff, you know. This, but, but what they're dealing with, they're encountering the god of Israel, and he is dangerous. And so they say, we've got to get rid of this ark no matter what we do. Now their plan that they come up with to get rid of the ark, I guarantee you that you could have come up with a better plan. I don't know if you've ever read, have you, you guys read First Samuel before? This is crazy. The stories are reading crazy. We're about to see their plan to get rid of the ark and send it back to Israel. I guarantee you, you would come up with a better plan than they have. But their hearts seem to be in the right place. Let's see. Chapter 6. Good job. You conquered one chapter. Here's another one. Verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests. And the diviners and said, so they're calling for the religious people. Surely the religious people will know what to do because us religious people always know what to do. Watch. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that she, we shall return to him? This is where it gets weird. They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. Of course, 
For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? And after he had dealt severely with him, did they not send the people away and they departed? This plan? Absolutely ridiculous. Send the ark back with a guilt offering. And the religious people say, let's put five golden mice and five golden tumors. That's all, that's all I would want was tumors uh, to, to appease his wrath. What, what's that all about? It, but it does seem like their heart is in the right place when you save in these pagans here because they don't want to end up like Pharaoh and the Egyptians who harden their hearts. So pagan Philistines seem to, to understand that God does not play. He is not like their auto. He's not like any God they have encountered. He's very different. And so they're going to appease them with this guilt offering. It gets even more silly. Verse 7. <laughs> this is, these are the spiritual guys still advising. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at the side of the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So their plan involved a little cow scheme. They put the ark on a cart along with the gold items pulled by these two cows who have been separated from their calves. Now, if the cows naturally go in the direction of their young calves, then God did not afflict them, and their suffering was all a coincidence. But if the cows go unnaturally toward Israel, then all this suffering was from the Lord. Let's see what happens. Verse 10. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the cow schemed work. The cows didn't naturally, but supernaturally, went to Israel. Great story. Now imagine, you're on the other side of the equation, and you're Israel. You're just chilling out in the fields, minding your own business, and all of a sudden, in the distance, come two cows carrying the most important piece in the history of Israel, the ark. Here it comes. Watch what happens. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Great response. They're worshiping the Lord. The ark has come back. Go get all the religious people. They'll know what to do. Verse 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart 
and offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So the, they're spying out. They're seeing all that's happening down below in Israel, the offering of the sacrifice to the Lord, the golden tumors and the golden mice seem to be acceptable as a guilt offering to heal them. Now, I like how these next verses, 17 through 18, are kind of just tacked on just in case you were wondering. Verse 17. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines return as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. I think that's tacked on there to say, hey, the Philistines are a little wacky here, but their heart is in the right place, at least in what they're trying to do to appease God. And now they're rid of the ark, They're healed. They're doing better. The ark is now back to the safe place. And it's appropriate among God's people. And they all lived happily ever after. The end. Not so fast. Look at verse 19. And he, that would be God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Take note. These are not Philistines. These are God's people. And he struck them with a great blow. What what is going on here? The ark is back and it's... Among God's people. And and here you have 70 men, boom, dead. What is going on? It seems as if, I I don't know, but the men, it says, looked upon the ark of the Lord. And maybe they looked upon it in in an inappropriate way. And 70 of them, boom, killed by God. We're not quite sure what they did, but it seems that these two chapters are setting up a contrast as the Philistines go out of their way to appease a God they don't even know, and the Israelites, who are supposed to know God, are flippant and irreverent with the ark. And God, boom, on the spot, killed 70 of them. And so, obviously, the great takeaway is that whether the ark is among the Philistines or whether the ark is among the Israelites, he don't play. He is not trivial. He is not like the other gods. Don't mess with this God. And you think, well, that's just a story from the Old Testament thousands of years ago. But I would say this. There are some in here call themselves believers, can get casual and flippant in our dealings with God, all of us can have this temptation. I, I, would, I, would see, I see some of you that I love. You, you are, let me just tell you, 
you're inconsistent in gathering with the people of God. You're inconsistent in uh, not just coming to church here on Sundays, but you're inconsistent in being with the body of Christ in ethos. You're inconsistent in your service. And I, I, I see some of you, you're treating God and his people like it's an elective. It's, uh, some of you are treating church like the elective of racquetball. I don't think you need racquetball to graduate. Probably not. It's an elective. You can take it if you want. And, and it, I, I'm just wondering if some of you are treating the body of Christ, treating commitment to church, kind of like racquetball. Because you're busy. You got a lot going on. And you just, you know, if you got time, you go play some racquetball. If you got time, you'll just jump into church and do whatever with the people of God and occasionally show up. You're just gonna, it's kind of flippant. It's kind of trivial. You, you, there's no seriousness to being committed to God and the body of Christ. It's like, whatever. And, and then there's some others in here who are a little bit more aggressive in being a believer, but you're very nonchalant about discipleship and, and you're indifferent to holiness. So not only are you flippant with the, like the first group, but you're more aggressive in your sinning. And like, let's just be honest, over the last 36 hours, let's be honest, okay? Over the last 36 hours, I know probably a good chance that some of you got drunk. Over the last 36 hours, some of you were probably sexually immoral. And you've shown up here on Sunday morning. And you're like, eh, let the blessings flow. <laughs> because you say, the God of the Old Testament, he's not the God of the New Testament. And God doesn't do that stuff anymore. That Old Testament stuff where people are being killed and dropping down. That stuff doesn't happen because we're in the New Testament. We're under grace. We're under Jesus. And that's cool. And I can be trivial with the body of Christ and do my thing on the weekend and show up. And everything's cool because God's not like that. And I want to say to you, I'm just saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Like somehow God changed. Like he's Old Testament God. Now the New Testament, like, whoa, we got Mr. Nice Guy here. He didn't do it anymore. Are you sure? There's a New Testament verse. It comes from Hebrews. And Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because the living God, I believe he's represented the same in the Old Testament, and he's the same God in the New Testament, and he's the same God today. Let me tell you a story. In the New Testament, there was this church. It wasn't in Evanston, but it was in a place kind of like it called Corinth. And in this church in Corinth, there were some believers, believers, yes, believers, who were in sin. And they, they created problems within the church. They were disrespectful to the rest of the body. And they were very selfish. And they would come together for the Lord's Supper. And they would rush on ahead. They sh- showed no respect. They were in sin. And it was a mess within the body of Christ. So in the context of the Lord's Supper and taking communion, some of them, God was disciplining them. And they were becoming weak. And some of them, God was making sick. And if I'm reading the text right, some of them were falling asleep, or the way we would say it, they were, they were being killed in the New Testament. They were treating God as if he is just a trivial God. He can just do whatever. We can do whatever in the church of God. And some of them were being disciplined to God to the point of death. Can you imagine someone coming to take communion this morning? They take it, and boom, call 911. And we act like, well, God's different. He's not like that. He doesn't do that stuff anymore. No. Are you sure? 
It's the same God. He doesn't play. He doesn't mess around. He's, he's still who he is. Old Testament, New Testament, today. So you got to ask the question, well, what's he like? What are you talking about? Who is he? What's he like? And this is where 1 Samuel finishes up today for us. This is, let's figure out what God's like. This is really good. Verse 20. Finish up with verse 20. Then the man of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And to whom shall we go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. That, that looks familiar, right? The, ben, the men of Beth Shemesh are acting just like the Philistines, trying to get rid of the ark, calling the men of Kiriath-Jerim, come and take this ark from us because they realize that God does not mess around, that God is holy. Did you see it in verse 20? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? God is not a good luck charm. God is not a trivial idol. He is holy and set apart from others. And he alone is worthy of reverence, respect, and worship. But rather than adjusting to the holiness of God, they call the men of the Kiriath and say, come and get this God from us. And the men of Kiriath Jerim, they welcomed the ark. They made the appropriate adjustments to God's holiness. They called a priest in and they responded appropriately. And it seems that these two responses to the holiness of God are taking place in here right now. There are some in here right now, they're like the men of Beth Shemesh. Rather than responding to the holiness of God, because I mean, he's clearly presented as holy, rather than responding to the holiness of God, you're like, keep God away from me. Some of you right now are saying, God, stay away from me. I'm going to live my life the way I'm going to live my life. I'm going to keep my idol the way I'm going to keep it. Keep God away with me. God, stay away from me. I showed up from church today. It was a big mistake showing up for church today. God, stay away from me. You're too holy. But there are some of you, you're just as sinful. But you're sick and tired of giving God the stiff arm and saying, stay away from me. You're sick and tired of sending him away. You realize that you are a sinner, just like me. You, but you... You, he's holy, and yet you realize you have idols, and, but yet you're sick and tired of the lagoon. You want to be in the ocean before a holy God, but you don't want to send him away anymore. But what are you supposed to do? Because you're sinful. So how do you make the adjustments to approach a holy God? What, what, what are you going to do? I mean, is the solution, okay, God's holy, you're not. How are you going to get to heaven? I'm just going to be a good person. No, that's not going to work. He is holy. The solution, the adjustment is not, I'm just going to be a good person. That's not the solution. The only way that you can approach a holy God, the only adjustment to get you into his presence, to get out in the ocean, came down. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus was put upon the cross after living a perfect life that you couldn't live. And God's wrath was upon him. The holiness of God for sin upon him. The atonement for your sin upon him. And the call is, if you want to approach a holy God, it's not by being a good person. That's not going to work. It's by repenting of your sins, putting your faith in Jesus, and you and I, through faith and repentance, can approach this holy God. So you have an option here this morning. 
you can continue to stiff-arm God and say, God, get away from me, just like the men of Beth Shemesh. Or you can say, God, I want to approach you, but I realize I'm a sinner. I'm going to approach you through repentance and faith through Jesus, who's going to give me bold access right into your presence, who lived a life that I could not live. And even as a believer, you keep doing that. You keep approaching a holy God through repentance and faith in Jesus. You're locked, you're sealed, you're saved, but we continue to live this life of repentance and faith through Jesus because, you know, we set the idols up on our hearts again, sometimes on a daily basis, right? And we need to repent and find forgiveness and approach a holy God once again through Jesus. So what happens if you're a believer and you want to keep the idol on the shelf next to God, what happens? What happens if you're a believer and you're here this morning and you don't want to leave your sin? You don't want to repent. What's going to happen to you? Well, if you're truly a believer, I know from the Word of God that He loves you. And as a loving Heavenly Father, the Word of God says, He'll discipline you. And in the context of the meal we're about to take, communion, the Bible says you don't want to take it in an unworthy manner. Doesn't mean you have to dredge up all the sins of the past and repent of each one. You're forgiven in Christ. But right now, if you are in sin habitually, your fellowship with God can be blocked. And you need to repent of those sins this morning. Say, God, please forgive me. God, please forgive me. Remind me of what Christ has done for me. But please, my brothers and sisters, don't do this. Don't take communion if you're going to play games with God. Do not take communion if you're not going to leave your sin. I I don't want to come and pick you off the ground. That could be more extreme, right? But there's discipline that happens in your life. So don't play games with God because God does not play. He is holy. He wants his people to be holy. He wants us to approach him through Jesus. He wants us to be honest about our sin and what's going on in our life and continue to come to him through forgiveness. So if you're sick and tired of the God lagoon, if you're sick and tired of your idol, if you're sick and tired of being enclosed and you want to approach God, you want to be in the ocean of God, come through Jesus. And as you're taking the communion this morning, be reminded of his death and his resurrection for you. And so before we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to go to a time of prayer. And this is an opportunity for you to confess. Not to confess all the sins of your whole life. It's an opportunity to confess right now. If there are certain sins that are unconfessed, that an idols you've been holding and you've been keeping close to you, it's time to confess of that idolatry and receive forgiveness in Jesus so that we're not taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So let's go to the Lord through prayer and confession. Father, the reality is that you are holy. You were set apart from us. And every single person here, including me, we are, are sinful. And we can continue to run to our idols, but that is so worthless, and and we hate it. We want to be in your presence, and so we come through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, through confession and repentance in Jesus. And so where you're at right now, my brothers and sisters, take this time to examine your life and repent of unconfessed sin and ask for forgiveness. Don't play games with God today. Don't take communion in an unworthy manner. It doesn't mean you were perfect But if there is sin, if there is something against someone else that you are holding in your heart or unrepentant sin, that is not compatible with the sacrificial death of Christ. So at this moment, 
Confess in your heart. Repent and ask for forgiveness. Father, we realize that the only way we could come into your presence is through the proper adjustments, and that's through Jesus and his perfect life and his forgiveness. As we come and as we take this meal, may we rejoice at forgiveness, rejoice at the grace and love you've poured out, and may we continue in that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.